Welcome to the Everyday Ultra Podcast, a show designed to help you level up your training, crush your races, and ultimately become a better endurance athlete every single day. Whether you're an endurance athlete as a hobby or someone who wants to be the best in the sport, this is the show for you. I'm your host, Joe Corsion, and thank you so much for listening. Now, let's get into it. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Everyday Ultra Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Corsione, and I'm super, super pumped for you to dive into this episode because we're going to be recapping my last few months of training for the Javelina 100 miler that is going to be the last week of October this year in 2023. So I've been training really hard for this race. This has been my A race all year. It is actually my second time doing Javelina 100, and I wanted to record the process and reflect on some lessons and takeaways and what my training was like just so if you're training for a 100 mile race whether it is javelina or anything else or just training for a race in general i'd love to share what's been working for me the lessons that i've had the way that i think about my training so that when you go ahead and train for your next ultra you're thinking about the same things you're implementing the things i learned and ultimately getting the most out of your training block so that you can hit your goals as well because i really think the best thing to do is always learning from other people and what's worked for them and you know learn from the mistakes, right? Because I've had, you know, many times where I've, you know, learned the hard way on things and I don't want the same for you. So I want to give you a behind the curtain look at my training. And that's exactly what we're going to do in this episode. The cool thing is coming up too. this is actually going to be a monthly series called the training log, where I'm actually going to dive into all of my training recaps and uh, process and everything else. So you can get into the nitty gritty of it. This episode's particularly special because I'm actually joined by my coach, Zach Bitter on here. And if you're unfamiliar with Zach, Zach is one of the greatest ultra marathoners of all time, former world record holder for fastest 100 mile time and most miles traveled in 12 hours, which is super, super cool. So he's super talented and I've been working with Zach for nearly two years and he's been monumental in my progress. And I always say like, even if like you're in the sport and you know a lot, there's such a good value in having a coach because even though, you know, you know what to do and, and have the right plan or everything, it's so great to have that um, second perspective in there to answer questions that you might have to, um, you know, provide that objective third party lens into your training and everything like that, because I've just found that so valuable with Zach and he's been able to set up a plan and a program to help me to, you know, rock and roll with it. Right. Like, I think there's such a value in having a coach, too, because sometimes we can always like think like, oh, am I doing this the right way or anything like that. Right. And so to have a coach just program something for you that's tried and true and backed by science. I mean, that is the ultimate, you know, thing to do. So we have Zach on here to answer my questions, to go through my training, to discuss why he programmed things the way that he did. And ultimately, um, it's an amazing conversation. So thank you so much for tuning in. Excited for you to listen in and, uh, let's get right into it. Oh, and one quick thing before we dive in here. If you want more ultra training tips delivered straight to your inbox on a weekly basis, uh, I just launched an everyday ultra newsletter where I'm going to be packing in training tips uh, backed by research and science and things to make you a better endurance athlete. And I'm going to be uh, releasing that real, real soon. So if you want to get on that list for when we start delivering free training tips in your inbox, it's going to be no BS, just straight to the point, actionable, practical advice. Um, go to the show notes. There's a link in there where you can sign up for the everyday ultra newsletter. Totally free. No catch just pure value and pure um, actionable tips for you and those will start to be going out in your inbox real soon so if you want more tips dive in there okay now for real we're getting to the episode here let's go 
What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Everyday Ultra Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Corsione, and I'm super pumped for this episode because not only is this something that I've wanted to do for a while, but it's something I've been asked so many times. So for those of you who have been following me along for a while, um, and for those who are maybe just joining in for the first time, uh, you may know or may not know that I've been working with Zach Bitter, um, who is an extremely accomplished ultra runner, coach, uh, podcast host of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Um, but I've been working with him as a coach for um, close to two years now, a little under two years now. And um, he's helped me to just make incredible progress in my journey. And a lot of people have been asking, they said, what are your coaching calls like? like what is your plan like? How, what is your relationship like with Zach? Like, what are some things he's kind of going with you? So I decided that I think, and Zach also suggested this as well, that it would be an awesome idea for you to have a live look in on one of our calls here today. So we have Zach on here today, um, who again, Zach is a super, super talented ultra runner. Um, he held the world record runs for fastest 100 mile time, most miles traveled in 12 hours, tons of podium and and first place finishes across super competitive races. He's also a professional athlete for Ultra, SF Fuels, and Ultimate Direction, and he's the host of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. And obviously, as I mentioned before, he's also a coach and offers coaching services and has pre-made training plans, which you can find on his website at zachbitter.com slash training hyphen plans. All that stuff will be in the show notes, but I'd love to introduce my coach himself, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Zach Bitter. Zach, thanks so much for, for coming on here and uh, having having thousands of people listening to our live coaching call. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, geez, man, enough about me. Let's get into your training. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. And yeah, for, for so for those who are listening, um, my target race right now is Havelina 100, which we're recording this on August 30th. So we're getting close to the two month mark, uh, which is super cool. And that race is August or October 29th, Halloween weekend. And so, uh, yeah, and I started this block um, just for context, right close to after canyons, um, which was my last race. So officially looking at the training plan here, I believe the first date that we had was 522. So this is kind of the block that we've been going in and um, yeah, we're coming into the the final uh, stuff and kind of did some short interval work in the beginning. And now we're getting into the longer intervals and long run development. And that's kind of where we're at. I don't know, Zach, if you wanted to add any kind of other color in terms of the, the phase that we're in now, maybe some some reasoning behind it and Kind of just some insight for the audience before I uh, ask my questions and reflections on training. Yeah, no, Joe. I think it's it's a fun spot to be in because this is the spot where I think ultra marathon runners are looking forward to. Or from my experience as a coach, sometimes it'll be a little bit of anxiousness early on because we're going through some things that are a little more speed work focused. I like to do a speed work development phase, like you said, that focuses on short intervals and long intervals and just really improve the overall fitness of the runner before I get overly invested in doing what I think a lot of ultra marathon runners or people just following the sport assume ultra marathon runners are doing all the time, which is running a bunch of long, slow miles. To me, I think it's just, it's not something that is necessary to just always be doing low intensity, long stuff year round. I think there's also probably some room to have very different categorizations of what a long run is where early in the plan you have a long run that's a little more traditional that's maybe in that two to three hour range where it's long enough to still get the value that we'd be looking for from a long run but not so long that we have this sort of plateauing of the adaptations to the degree where now the risk reward isn't very beneficial from you actually improving as a runner but then at the end of the day you're running 100 miles at javelina so being on your feet for a long period of time 
is important. So I like to kind of separate the long run into those two categories. So we're sort of exiting uh, that first category where your long runs have been more traditional long runs where we've capped up most of them, although you've done some events. So that usually kind of builds in some, I guess you could call them like long runs, ultra style long runs along the way that are just fun life experiences and opportunities to practice race day stuff a little bit earlier than is maybe necessary. But if you have those opportunities, they're, they're great to take advantage of. But now going forward, we're going to kind of focus that where we sort of peel away from a lot of the speed work and remove some of the training load that that places on you and replace it with things that are going to just be a lot more specific to what you're going to do at Javelina. So, you know, Javelina is a runnable course, but it's also a course where there's probably going to be some hiking involved. And if no hiking, it's going to certainly involve some very low intensity, easy running where for someone like you, Joe, I think like base intensity is kind of like the ceiling of what I would say mm -hmm. is what we would expect on race day. And for those of you listening, I categorize that base as where your aerobic threshold hits. So it's like up to that, that's that, that point where you sort of leave the easy category and enter the moderate category. So we'll be working on a lot of that and lower intensity going forward. And then also stretch out that long run beyond that typical two to three hour range to give you some opportunity to practice the things that are going to be more specific to race day. Like what do you do as the temperature increases throughout the course of the day when you're out there in terms of how does your fueling and your hydration change during those times, those time frames. What is it like to kind of go through that kind of ebb and flow that you have for something as long as a hundred mile where sometimes you feel great, like you're on top of the world. And other times you maybe feel like, why am I doing this? <laughs> and kind of giving yourself opportunities, I think, to just remind yourself how those come and go. And it's not something where when you hit a low, it's this kind of linear trajectory downward from there. It can oftentimes be a little more surprising how good you feel when you even continue the activity that got you there in the first place and put some longer sessions on there, maybe some back-to-back -back sessions. I know you're local to the area, so you'll be out on the course, probably doing some loops around Javelina, really dialing all that stuff in. So uh, there's just so much uniqueness, I think, when you're getting out there, as long as it, there is some application to practicing it specifically. But I think when, you're, when you get to a point where it's time to really focus on that, so around this eight-week period that you are right now, because that gives us essentially six weeks of um development that we can use that for before it's time to taper you're going to be able to practice all that stuff you would do specific to race day with a higher fitness overall fitness because of the speed work development and because of the more traditional training uh, inputs that we worked on leading into that phase versus just kind of at the very beginning having a really long long run maybe twice a week and rinsing that throughout the entire plan yeah, hundred percent. And there's so many good nuggets in there that have been so transformational with me. Like when we started to work together, like to your point, like to talk about like the long and slow runs, like before you and I started working together, that was pretty much the extent of my training. I was just doing low intensity. That was it. And I was for a while, like I made some great progress, but then I kind of hit this ceiling where I just really wasn't getting faster. And I really was just kind of in this purgatory phase. And that's why I came to you because I was like, Hey man, I really want to make progress, but I have no idea what the heck to do. And it was really those short intervals and, and starting to get that, a lot of that interval work that really helped me to really just, I, I saw improvements in my speed. I saw improvements in, you know, how I was able to push myself in there. And it was just eye opening. Like that was such a huge development for me. And it was super cool to, to go through that experience of first doing that. Cause you know, I saw like the benefits just really massively ramp up from there, which is just super, super awesome. The, the second thing that you mentioned there that has been 
pretty game changing to me that I also want to talk about is like the, the concept of getting like more specific closer to race day. I remember when I first signed up for Javelina, you and I were, were on the phone talking and I told you, I was like, I think, I think I started the training last year around the same time. I think it was around May. And I said like, oh man, like should I be running in the 120 degree heat, like <laughs> to get heat adapted? And you said, Hey, like there is no need to do that right now. In fact, you might be doing more harm than good. Like you really only got to focus on specifics closer to race day. And now we can go through the least specific stuff first. And so kind of like you were talking about with the intervals and going into short stuff first and then going to long stuff, like that concept of least specific to most specific has been just so game changing for me because I always thought it's like, you got to be as specific as possible throughout, but you kind of rob yourself of the important things from the not so specific stuff that can still help you on race day, which is just super awesome. And then the last thing I also want to just highlight too, is like, you've been super awesome with me texting and saying, Hey, I got a 50 miler. I want to do or <laughs> Hey, I need to pay someone for, you know, a very long time, which ended up being a little longer. Like, what are your thoughts on that? And just like that adaptability, which I think is, is so cool. And opportunities, like you said, like you just get rad life experiences that you're like, I can't, like I want to do this so bad and it's cool to have that adaptability along the way. And, and by the way, anyone listening to, um, I know Zach, we, we were talking about, um, you know, bass and, and short intervals and long intervals. Zach has actually an awesome series solo cast that he explains a lot of these concepts. Um, he simplifies all of them. I, I believe it's called like training principles simplified or something like that. But, um, he has all these things, uh, simplified for you too on the human performance outliers podcast. So I'll put a link to that below. Um, if you're interested in diving into any of these areas a little deeper, um, but thought I might put that in there as well. Cause it's helpful, but all those things have just been monumental in the training, I think. And those three concepts that you laid out there and especially going to this last thing, have just been eye opening for me in the training sense for sure. Yeah. I think it's interesting when you get into real life because it's mm -hmm. one thing for me as a coach for myself or with working with someone else is just to think like, okay, on paper, here are the exact inputs and assume they're all going to go perfect. And the timeline is going to line up to the day versus what ends up happening with people in real life where, first of all, they should be enjoying this process, right? Because otherwise, why are you doing it? There's plenty of ways to move your body and be healthy. So like if training for and racing ultra marathons isn't bringing you that enjoyment, like I, it sounds hypocritical as an ultra marathon runner and a coach, but like you can go find those if they're bringing you more enjoyment. So I always think like step one for a lot of people is looking at their lifestyle first and a lot of times there's multiple inputs for that of like their work, their family, their social life, and then experiences they want along the way. So like if I were to tell you, Joe, yeah, okay, there's this race you want to do and there's pacing Sally at this 200 miler, which I think you might have a record for the longest pacing duty for a 200 miler. <laughs> Didn't you do like 100 miles? Something like <laughs> the plan was 50 and then it went to 100. <laughs> there you go. So it's like it's one of those things, though, where I think if you're thinking of it practically and not looking at the person as a robot or this like only on paper input, then you start to create room for that sort of stuff where you just build a timeline that's reasonable, where it's not something where like if a mistake happens or an opportunity comes up where you do something that maybe does remove some of the potential training that we could do because of that new input, that we actually have a timeline that is usable enough to still kind of check the boxes we want to maximize your potential at Javelina, but not necessarily remove the other things. So yeah, going and pacing Sally for 100 miles or doing the 50 miler in Hawaii, 
those may not have been things that would typically show up on a plan just on paper, but they are things that a lot of alternatives are doing. There are a lot of experience that people want to get when they have them. And I think that becomes the, one of the bigger questions when you're starting is what is the right starting point so that I can have those. And then, and then on top of it too, there's also just life circumstances that happen. Like maybe you mm -hmm. don't want those. I have some coaching clients that they don't like to do anything other than train and hit their A race. They like the kind of the more regimental schedule and just see that progress happen. And they, they stay away from that stuff, but they could get sick for a week or two. And in mm -hmm. that situation, we want to have a situation where that doesn't cost us to the degree where now all of a sudden we're playing catch up because we had such a tight timeline that, you know, some life circumstance played a, played too big of a role in things like that. And then, then, you know, there's always injuries and things like that too, that can pop up. And a lot of times they're not long injuries, but it could just be, Hey, I've got a sore hamstring. It's bothering me a little bit on speed work. Let's pause speed work for a couple of weeks and let that catch up and then resume once it feels ready for it. If you have that, that flexibility in the timeline, you can not stress about those things as much when they do happen, not find them to be something that has us put you, put you behind, so to speak. So yeah, I think um, it's just a fun process to kind of like figure out all the puzzle pieces with that stuff. And then ultimately, like you said, I have those uh, podcast episodes that deal with it because I do think a lot of times we overcomplicate things to a large degree when it comes to programming where you get all these fancy workout structures and things like that, where at the end of the day, it's like I like just ask myself, like, what are what what intensity are we actually targeting for this phase of development? or what intensities are we targeting in some cases, and then build it out from there and really simplify it versus throwing a ton of creativity on there. Now, I do have coaching clients where they like some creativity in the workouts because it motivates them a little more, in which case I think that is, is, is perfectly fine. But that's just kind of the individual side of things where you get to learn to know the person and what is going to actually keep them motivated and excited and still use kind of some of those basic simplified structures enough where they actually really learn the actual intensity they're supposed to be hitting these at. And then I think you can actually get a little more creative from time to time. But um, I've said a lot, so <laughs> we can maybe get into some of your questions if you want to chat about some of that stuff. No, this that was so great, man. And I love how you, and it's funny you brought the hamstring example because that was one that came to mind, like, because that was the exact scenario that you and I were in with Black Canyon training. I remember we started off the block. It was supposed to be that short interval phase. And I remember reaching out to you and I was like, hey, my hamstring is really messed up. Um, I can run, but like speed work really pisses it off. And, you know, it was cool because we just tailored the training to take speed work off the table and do what we can to still make progress, but with the cards we were dealt with. And I thought that was just, just a cool thing to a lesson for me, like just to be flexible in the training and like, you know, like learn how to have that puzzle piece, like, which was so, so cool to, to really just still hit the goal, but also like play with the cards you're dealt with. So, mm -hmm. um, I'm really, really glad you brought up that example. Cause that was one that was, I think that was maybe, cause I think with Havelina beforehand, there wasn't too many disruptions that, and I mean, in 2022, like there wasn't too many disruptions in my training. I think that black Canyon thing was like the first time where I reached out and I was like, help man like i was like i was like <laughs> i need i need to change this thing like what do i do um so that was a, a cool thing yeah and so a question for you i guess diving into the questions and you mentioned the pacing sally thing so uh, kind of like a reflection for for you so i did like the, the Kawhi 50 miler on this saturday before bigfoot and i had like a hip issue that i texted you about but like that actually has seemed to 
kind of just wither away. It's still kind of monitoring it, like just to make sure it's not popping up. But like, it seemed like that was a very isolated scenario. Not sure what happened, but definitely something to look at. But I had the 50 miler and then I went to go pace Sally originally for 50 miles, ended up being a hundred and going into like after that. And even just the, the moment that we got to the hotel room after the whole thing, like I was wrecked, like my legs <laughs> hurt, like my arches were on fire. Like I was so tired, just, you know, I was obliterated. And then it was interesting because I only got four hours of sleep that night. I woke up and I felt fine, like no soreness, energy levels were fine. And then Zach, here's like the interesting thing. I thought like my fitness was like maybe going to get affected, if you look at like my last few workouts and like my last few things, like I'm pretty much like hitting the mark, like pretty good. And I'm feeling a lot better. Like my long runs, like the pace on them has just like getting lower and lower. So I guess my question and kind of reflecting on all that is like, cause like, uh, the pacing at Bigfoot, obviously very low intensity, you know, uh, when we were running, it was very slow when we were like, just cause the nature of the 200 miles and like hiking the uphills and stuff like, I don't know. Did that like help with fitness? Is that maybe suggesting I might be going too hard on like maybe some of like my recovery run? So I, I don't know. I'm just trying to like wrap my brain around the whole scenario because everything was telling me that like my training would be affected, but it really wasn't. And I feel like the best I've ever felt. So I guess I'm, I don't know. Could you help me decipher this or? <laughs> it sounds like you might have a good problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm trying to like make sense of it. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. Sort of no, I think, I mean, there's, there's, there's probably a lot of in like things that would maybe result in that. I think one is when we just look at the scope of your training over the last couple of years, you have been very injury free. Like you've had little things mm -hmm. pop up, but not little things that kind of sideline you to the degree where now you aren't able to run or even cross train. And mm -hmm. you just have to sort of like accept the deprogramming that's going to come with all the lack of that activity almost altogether. So I think just like your, your relative ability to absorb a large training load or a large stimulus like that is likely improved quite a bit compared to maybe what your perspective would be like. There's also like what you said, there is the, the nature of your mind goes to the amount of volume you did from a time standpoint out mm. there pacing, pacing Sally and Sally, you know, she was doing, a, it was a two, it was Bigfoot. So it was 200 plus miles and you know, she's been doing a lot of 200 miles lately. So it's mm -hmm. a, one of those things where for you, you know, even a hundred miles at that intensity is going to be lower impact because you're going to be doing a lot of hiking in a situation like that. And the impact is a lot of times what will really limit the amount of volume an endurance runner can do. This is why we see like triathletes, cyclists, swimmers be able to tolerate a much larger volume mm -hmm. of training because their respective disciplines just remove a lot of that impact. Whereas running, introduces quite a bit of it. So that, that could be part of it. Um, the fact that you did the 50 miler and have gotten through the speed work development phase of training could just suggest that you're in a position where your body's ready to tolerate quite a bit. Cause we haven't really overstressed your volume and overstressed your long, slow stuff to some degree yet. And, but we have gotten you quite fit based on the speed work development phase. So I mean, I think you should just look at that as kind of an interesting like note of like personal reference in terms of how do your body responds to these things. Now, mm. the, the the total ultra runner thing to do would be like, if that's good, more would be better. And you go and just start doing these things all <laughs> over the place, which I would suggest you're probably going to have a margin of diminishing returns at some point with that. <laughs> um, but ultimately, like as a coach, what I look at is, that is like, you just, you had two experiences here that would be much more in the category of ultra relative long run experience.
Mm -hmm. And I think you want to be mindful of those and those can be very wide ranging. So like I, before I had run a hundred miles, I did this, uh, this biking trip where it was really Mm -hmm. low intensity. I was carrying this insanely heavy pack, which was super annoying on a bike. And that was probably the worst of it. just like the weird aches and pains you got from like carrying that, that weight and being just on this bike. But it was like, I think three or four days of biking. Uh, and some of those days were like 12, 14 hours long. And I wasn't really beating my body up the same way as I normally would with running, but I was definitely getting kind of a mental perspective of what it was like to really just deal with myself in a moving position for long periods of time. And I remember the 50 miler I was training for that time when I did it, I finished. And I remember thinking, wow, that felt way shorter than the other 50 milers I had done. And it was because my perspective of what it felt like just to be like focused on a singular task for something for very long just got increased because of that, those like two 12 to 14 hour days on the bike, which were just much longer than the 50 mile time I was out there for. So I think like just making sure you're actually accounting for the value add there and thinking of it mm-hmm. that way and using that to your advantage. And then also when we look at it from the physical side of things, knowing that those are much more specific to race day intensity than than they than the traditional long runs the speed work development is and just know that you have a couple high value inputs there already so that just might help guide how much of that we do so there's kind of two ways to look at long run development that that i like to play around with as a coach and one is looking at it as like let's just send you out for a long solo effort so you can really go through the rigors of what it's like to be out all day long I mean, I'm probably not going to send you all, all day long, although you essentially were with pacing and running the 50 miler for the most part. But generally speaking, like that's one way to go about it. And then there's one that I think a lot more ultra runners are probably familiar with, which is sort of like a back-to-back long mm-hmm. run setup or one that's probably very recognizable for people is like you have like stuff like the Western States Memorial Weekend Training mm-hmm. thing where they do three days and you cover 71 miles of the course. But that first day you're doing like, roughly 50 kilometers. So there's people out there for, for quite a long time. I think usually the first person coming through is around five hours on that, that particular day, or the front group of people are coming in around five hours. So it's a long day relative to a normal long run. And then you repeat, you know, you repeat the 40 more miles of the course in the next two days. So you get this like overall bolus of race specific intensity over two, three days or you can maybe look at it as like, I'm just going to take a really big bolus all at once. You want to be mindful of things like injury and things like that from those mm-hmm. things, but they do have their value, but they also have their trade-offs. So the back-to-back structure oftentimes allows for maybe a little bit of higher quality because you are giving yourself a break to not only let your legs recover, but also get rehydrated, get some fuel in, and then start the next day with those things replenished versus you do one longer session. You know, now you're in a position where if you Mm -hmm. start getting dehydrated during that, the likelihood of you catching back up during that session is quite low, if not impossible. And somewhat to some degree, same thing with fueling. So you have a little bit more of a risk in the quality by stretching it out very long. Uh, But you also have that, that relative experience that's going to be more familiar to race day. So I tend to like to kind of blend those to some degree when I'm working with people individually and we can kind of like look at their actual availability and what their inputs currently have been or what we want them to be and maybe go back and forth. So for you going forward, what we'll likely do is we'll account for those two that you've done already and Mm -hmm. then maybe lean a little bit more into a back-to-back long-run structure 
for this lead into Javelina, but then ultimately give you a couple opportunities to get out there and maybe do a couple loops around the Javelina course if you want to, if that makes you feel like, all right, if I can go twice around in one long run, that's going to set me up nicely on race day because I don't feel like I'm closing quite as much of a gap as I would otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a such a good concept to just think about. So many on that of even just when you're talking about like the the mental length of you and the bike trip and like even just knowing like I mean because that 50 miler did seem like pretty short to me because I've been doing 100ks and yeah. 100 milers. That was my first 50 miler and gosh I don't even remember when, but like just seems so short to me. And like even now just doing that experience of pacing Sally. I mean I was I think out there total I don't remember the exact time, but 30 plus hours I would imagine. And so like, I can mm -hmm. imagine how this hundred miler is going to be shorter, but it's taking all those experiences and, and ultimately seeing how it integrates in the training, I think has been super, super cool. And especially on the, the realms of, you know, getting specific in the long runs and everything like that, which is super, super cool. And, and speaking about specificity in the long runs, it kind of relates to the question, but also a little bit of a pivot. Um, there's two, things where I'm thinking about race day, I'll talk about like, I guess the first thing first to maybe something to practice in like the long runs coming up. So when I think about Javelina last year, um, I mean, my legs got super, super sore. Um, and I really struggled on that initial kind of climb, like on loops three to five, like that climb to jackass. Um, it's not that big of a climb, but I mean, it's a thousand feet like relative and you know, you're running pretty much the entire time out there. And it, it, again, like I know some mountain racers probably listen to me like, Oh, Joe, like <laughs> you know, suck it up. But like for me, I, I did relatively struggle with that. Um, and I know when we did the canyons training block, like we did some like uphill work on the treadmill and that like helped immensely. I don't know. Do you think there's any value in, I guess, like, what can I do, I guess, to, to really help? I mean, of course I'll be out there like practicing that climb a lot. And, um, especially in these back-to-back -back long run days, like I'm going to really try and, you know, uh, you know, get that climb under my belt, but is there anything I can do to, I guess, prevent it? Cause I know that's an area of opportunity where I can totally shave off some time when I'm mm -hmm. thinking about, um, you know, racing this year. Yeah, there's a few things to consider with that scenario and the there's one where I think I'm going to I'm going to answer this question with the mindset that this is a specific question to you but also to help people understand mm -hmm. like how this may play out for them in a different race and and share a personal experience with specific to Havelina. So, I did Havelina twice, 2016 and 2017. In 2016, uh, it was still washing machine style that year. So you'd go back mm. and forth. So sometimes you'd be coming down from jackass on that, that climb. And sometimes you'd be going up, but as it played out, you had that climb up to jackass on the fifth loop. And I remember in 2016, I went up that climb. I felt like I'm sure I was slowing to some degree relative to the other loops, but I felt really good. And I was able to run the entire thing. Mm. In 2017, I went slower. I think I was maybe closer to a minute per mile slower on that climb up to Jackass Junction. Oh wow! And the main reason for that was I went out too fast in 2017 relative to 2016. <laughs> so I got a little greedy early on. And part of that was just in, in 2016, my expectations there, my goals there were quite different. And in 2017, they were different. I had already had a, a I had a a win and at the time the course record there. So I was like, well, let's try that, try like improving upon that. And I just probably got flew a little too close to the sun, so to speak in 2017 relative to 2016 and paid for that a little bit on the back end. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes it's like the starting point is just analyzing. Is it that it's that climb that is problematic and you need to work on the specifics of it? 
or is the maybe the first three or four reps up that climb a little too mm. aggressive to the degree where they're pulling from your ability to feel good on it during the end. So that's point one. Point two is there is reason to practice the specifics you're going to see on race day because this is something where the mechanics of running up that hill are going to be different than, say, the mechanics of running down from Jackass Junction towards the start-finish line. And practicing that can be valuable. Where I think people sometimes make a mistake with that sort of stuff is they think, okay, climbing, and they immediately go to as steep as they can find. And (laughs) if the climb they're trying to perfect is also steep in a similar grade, that's probably a good move. But what we really want, what I like more than saying like, okay, Joe, we need to send you out to get 15,000 feet of climbing every week to really get you better at climbing. I'd be way more interested in saying, okay, Joe, let's figure out roughly what's the grade of that climb that you're trying Mm -hmm. to perfect. And let's work on building up your tolerance going in the mechanic that's going to be required on that climb. So Mm -hmm. whether it's treadmill, whether it's getting out on a similar climb, and it doesn't have to be exact. Like we're not talking about like, oh, it's an 8% climb and you did seven, therefore you're screwed. You're going to be fine with something like that. It's more of a like, it's an 8% climb and you're doing a 20% incline where now you're practicing something that's basically a hiking incline. And in real, realistically for you, there's going to be a fair bit of running up that climb. So that's the other way to look at it is like, let's start as we get closer to the race itself, maybe including a little more terrain similar to that, yeah. whether it be on a treadmill or whether it be on trails nearby your house or when you do get out there and run on the course itself and just add a little more relative exposure to that so that we're practicing that, especially if you think it's a spot where there's improvement that can be made there. Uh, and yeah, so those are kind of like the, the two main ones, or the two two main things I think about when it comes to that sort of an experience. Mm-hmm. Such a good point. Like, and I love how you distinguish, like it might not be the specificity. It might be how you, you know, maybe drain the tank in the beginning because mm-hmm. that's a very real possibility given my, very aggressive uh start last year to javelina i remember my crew was like uh, you weren't alone (laughs) oh i know and with that race as you know like it's just uh it's so easy with that cool desert morning and you know the the buttery trails like you can just rip it out there Mm -hmm. um and i definitely think i i flew way too close to the sun too in the beginning last year and i think that for sure had like a part to play and that kind of leads to my second question here which i was curious to ask you because um so like the last few times now granted i've had some like external issues like i remember with canyons it was very much like my external life and stress and lack of sleep and just not taking care of myself um that really led to like my kind of body shutting down and like when i did black canyon i think um it definitely went way too hard in, in black Canyon for sure. Um, but I, the last few times where I've really tried to ease it out in the beginning, like, I feel like, I don't know, like I almost, and when I think about Javelina, like I felt like I got a high from like being out close to the front in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that like mentally helped me. And like, I was thinking, cause like, I know if I can just run eights for, the entire or 830 for like the entire race at Javelina, which is like my pretty much like RPE two to three pace. If I just do that consistently for hundred miles, I shave off so much of my time from last year. Mm-hmm. Um, even though like my first loop was 735 and I think my second loop was like, I think maybe, I don't know, eight minutes or something like that. So even so I would shave it off, but it's like, I don't know, like I, I 
I feel this itch to like also still like go out hard, but like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's going to be the smart move. So I guess like I'm trying to wrap my brain around like, do I try and ease it off or like, and just, I don't know. I, I feel like we, we talk about this a lot, but, and you, you made this one point that always sticks with me is like, once you have that experience, like you can trust it so much more. And like, for me, I, I haven't had that experience yet due to other mm-hmm. external factors, like kind of coming in. Um, but I don't know, I guess, I, I don't know what the question is here, but it's, I, I think maybe it's I just talking it out of just <laughs> blasting myself out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> no, th- this is a great question. I think this is, I mean, this is a topic in and of itself too, in terms of just like pacing these longer sessions. And I mean, personally, I think that this is something where the sport as a whole, the people breaking course records, everything involved to the person in the, in the back of uh, the pack can likely improve upon to some degree. Now, granted, if you're chasing cutoffs, and there are races where those cutoffs are super aggressive early on and you have no choice but to be on your horse and and, and hitting those standards or you're just going to get pulled anyway. So that kind of puts you in a position where where there's a minimum that you can consider towards how much you hold back. But generally speaking, if that's not the case, I think most ultra runners go out too fast. And I think the reason for that is because there's this mindset that because it's so long you're going to be fatigued at the end. And no matter what you do in the beginning, it's going to be miserable near the end. Mm. And there's a little bit of truth in that. It will be more difficult. Like your body will be broken down a little bit more than it was when you started. So you will be less fresh. You will have some level of dehydration and you will likely be feeling like you would rather be eating dinner at the table versus through an aid station. (laughs) So that is, I, I understand why the mindset goes that direction. But what I think people miss with that sort of setup is they undervalue how much mental focus they can retain and then use to drive what is ultimately a relatively low intensity if they don't get out too fast. So the way I like to describe this is you got to think about it as burning both mental and physical energy when you Mm -hmm. go out too fast. So, and they cascade too. So you go out a little too fast, you're going to be more likely to tap into more of your muscle and liver glycogen, which is going to increase your fueling demand throughout the course of the day. You're also going to be more likely to raise your body temperature and overheat a little bit more, which for a race like Javelina is a very key factor to consider. And then you're also going to break down your body a little bit quicker to the point where now you're trying to move a more tired and more sore condition than you would have otherwise. And on top of it all, you've been burning that mental energy trying to run that faster pace early on. So now you're dealing with smaller bandwidth of mental energy to do all those things on a more broken down body. So if you think of it like that, then I think it kind of welcomes this like more conservative start. And that can be tricky for people because a lot of times these long races and you get a cor- you get a good, when you get a course like Javelina, the majority of the course in certain sections could be very runnable. Meaning like if mm. you only had to run from one aid station to the next on any given day, you could probably do that. But on race day, you're going much further than that. So you want to look at like you shared some interesting data points and that's usually where I like to start with people is like, do you have a goal pace? So if your goal pace is eight and a half minutes per mile, eight and a half minutes per mile, 
then we want to be conscious that we're not sending you out so much faster than that, that you're forcing yourself into a positive split. Mm. And it won't be a fun experience, positive split, because positive splits, unless it's like a very small margin, are typically more painful than, say, an even or negative split. Because by the nature of that, you're going to be feeling better because you're running the same intensity. You're running faster in some cases if you're negative splitting, if you're like Nick Curry. <laughs> um, and here's the other thing, Joe. Like when you have a situation like that, since the majority of ultra runners are going to go out too fast and end up with a positive split, if you're even reasonably close to an even split, you're going to be passing people mm. at the end of the race, which is a whole new level of mental focus that you'll be able to have in your in your list of motivators when you're in that really tough spot where it's time to, to really focus down and really feel like you're trying to find different motivators to do versus having that situation where like you get to that last climb and you know, okay, I'm hiking this spot. And I know I ran that on loops one and loops two. And then all of a sudden someone comes running past you as well, making you look like you're standing still. That's never good like mental stimulus or mental exposure to have in terms of how you end up feeling about that along the way. And it just usually feeds into negative self-talk versus positive self-talk. So I think like generally speaking, if your goal is eight and a half minute pace, the closer we can get you to reasonably within that. Now there is some variables to consider with Javelina and other courses in terms of how things change throughout the day. So that first loop at Javelina, you're likely going to be a little faster because mm. of the conditions. Like you said, mm -hmm. it's going to be 60 degrees, dry, nice and cool. People might even have long sleeves on at that point. So you're just going to have less logistics to manage with that situation. And you're going to have less need for your body's, your body to do cooling related things in order to kind of keep the intensity going the way you want it. So for a situation like that, like let's say you came around loop run, you were averaging closer to eight fifteen pace. I wouldn't say that's overly aggressive. If you're getting down to eight into the sevens, now you're probably looking at a point where that likely will pull from the back. If eight and a half is actually your potential. So Sometimes, and this is the hard part, is figuring out what is a reasonable goal and then building it out from there. And also like looking at the course. Havelin is nice in the sense that it's the same loop. So you do know, minus the weather condition, if a loop is harder than the, the if your last loop is harder than your mm -hmm. first loop, uh, if as long as you adjust appropriately for the weather, then it's likely that it was you that slowed down versus the course got more difficult. Cause you do have courses where like, yeah, the first half is runnable and the second half is mountainous, in which case it's more of an effort balance over the course today versus an actual pace balance. Mm -hmm. Such a good perspective. Yeah. And I, I, I love, that's exactly what I needed to hear because it's like, it's one of those things where it can be so excited to go up. But like, if you just take into account, like all the mental things, I think it goes back to earlier when I was saying like my legs were so sore. I mean, it was probably because I just tore it up a little too fast out there. I mean, 735 mm -hmm. was definitely, I think maybe a little too aggressive for, for my liking last year, for sure, which is uh, definitely an interesting thing to, to, to have. Um, also to I'll pause here too. Are you okay on time? I just want to make sure. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, okay, cool. I just want to make sure, be respectful. Um, but anyways, like back on that kind of stuff, like I think it was a little bit too aggressive and like, I mean, you know, like my goal is I want to get a golden ticket. And like, when I think about time goals, like, which like, I'd love to get sub 14, like, which I believe is basically like, you know, low eights uh, or I think actually it's right under eight. Like I think, uh, or I don't know, sub 14 is, I should know the pace, like right off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, that's going to be in the eights. It's going to yeah. be, uh, yeah, it's going to be lower eights, lower eights. Yeah. 
like lower eights. Like I would love to do sub 14, but of course I want the ticket. And I mean, who knows? Like if we have the same weather as last year, it'll probably be a potentially another, another sub, you know, 13 year. And so I guess like the question is like goal management, right? Like, you know, I don't want to, obviously like I do want the ticket, but I don't want to like put my stock in everything else. I really want to run my own race, you know, at the same time, but I also want to be competitive. And it's like, I don't know, do I have like the goal of like, Hey, like, you know, I go for a 15 and if it's like, I'm feeling good by like loop four, like, you know, can I drop that hammer and like shoot for that kind of thing? I guess, how do you think about goal management? Like when it comes to like you and I don't know, are you racing Javelina this year? Like for sure. Cause I know we, we were talking about that, but like, I guess like how do you approach your goals and when you're in a race, like, and how yeah. do you with mine? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think having some perspective is good. So you've done Javelina before, obviously like, you know, when you unpack your, your, your race day, you had a, a positive split. So like, it's one of those things where like you have data, but maybe it's not, the best mm. data you would like in terms of knowing precisely how fast you go versus a scenario where like, let's say you felt like you just nailed it. Like you did everything as, as I, as good as one could expect for a hundred miles and it produced a, uh, you know, X time. Then we would have a situation where it's like, well, we're leaning on just improved fitness and improved experience to lower this versus, you know, having something as big as, Oh, if we had some splits that were, really obtuse relative to your average pace, that's the point to clean up. And sometimes that tells the tale too, in terms of where those are. So mm -hmm. for example, let's say someone has a stomach issue early on in a race and they have some really, really bad splits for a while, but then they kind of come back and they're running really strong at the end. Fixing that problem is going to be different than say somebody who has like pretty clean splits, not a whole lot of stomach issues, but then they have these big, long, slow miles near the end, just because they overreached a little bit and they ran closer to maybe their 90 mile intensity early on. So they were just struggling that last 10 and then had some long stops in the eight, the final couple aid stations and things like that. So I think always looking at where the improvement can be made in big margins first is good in terms of kind of coming up with that goal. So like looking at your data and saying like, where are say, let's say, what are the five slowest miles here in that mm. and finding that and then asking yourself like, well, how do I clean those up? Because if you could just bring those closer to your average pace, mm. you're taking off a big chunk of time and you can start to kind of wrap your head around like where maybe your potential is by just cleaning up some of the, the bigger messes and, and then seeing like, well, where does that put me once I've cleaned up those bigger messes? And, and then seeing like, relatively speaking, can I expect to be able to go 30 minutes faster than that? Or is that asking, so asking for it a little bit too much. So really, I think at the end of the day, and sometimes this is just collecting some data through the long runs too, where mm. we're looking at things like, uh, like what is your average pace for some of these back-to-back -back long runs or these bigger, longer, slow stimuluses, and then adjusting based on that. So if it's a situation where let's say we send you up for back-to-back -back long runs on the course, relatively hot temperatures and that produces a pace that is like cl close to a low eight then it may be aggressive for us to assume that on race day you're going to be able to match that because you're doing three more loops on that so usually i like to look at those as like if we maybe we send you into one of those back-to-back -back long runs a little more fatigue in your legs and then mm. now you produce low eights well, if we send you in with enough fatigue in the legs, we can assume on race day, you're not going to have that. Mm. So maybe that's a little more clean of a look in terms of where your averages might be. So I think there is some value in, in using some of those race specific training runs, 
uh, to, to, to tease that out. But what that requires then is to practice the actual paces that you think you're going to target. Because this is the other thing that I probably should have shared when we were talking about long runs before, but I'll talk about it now is I think a lot of times when people start doing these extensive long runs, they don't necessarily think of them the way they are. They should, they don't think of them as like, this is race day practice to the degree I should be doing everything the same as I'm going to mm-hmm. on race day, which means if I'm planning on doing some hiking during race day, I should be doing some hiking early and often in this long run versus just waiting for the wheels to start to get a little wobbly and then add more walking. Cause that's just going to reinforce the problem that we have, which is too fast, more hiking at the end because of it, or more time and aid stations because of it. So let's say we want to kind of test some of these things out. Well, we can send you out for some, for a weekend where you do back to back long runs and you do eight fifteen pace and you just are really, really like a, just really precise about hitting that average and just kind of gauge, how does that feel? And then mm-hmm. do another one with eight thirty. How does that feel? And then just kind of start balancing out like relative effort expectations and just getting a little bit of a cleaner look at kind of how your legs are doing at those very paces, whether we, we suspect one is overly aggressive versus maybe a little close to like a conservative goal or things like that. Cause eventually you're probably gonna end up with a range of targets on race day with something mm-hmm. like this, because it's imprecise to the degree where this isn't like Olympic distance stuff where we can get you very close, if not at or beyond the actual race distance, or like say a 5k where I can send you for a broken 5k workout and we can get really good data to suggest whether you're able to actually run that or not. That's the beauty of ultra running is we don't always have that. And then there's also just the length of it can always, always add things. Cause there's something that could happen that we don't account for or are unable to account for that happens that slows things down a little bit. So I think, um, in terms of kind of like your overall question with that is like, I think it's just like the more long runs we can do between now and the race that are very close to those goal paces you're doing. So you can get a really good look at what the variance feels like. We can probably get reasonably close as to whether one is, whether something is a little more aggressive than another and see like how much better it is. And it's also something where people don't consider a negative split either. And Mm -hmm. I think that's Something that like the, take take Nick for example, we talked mm-hmm. about him when it came negative splits because he's like the master of negative splitting. When he got second at Havelina the year before it became a golden ticket race, it was he ran I think it was like a fourteen a low fourteen hour or something like that, mm-hmm. and he ran substantially faster in the second half to the degree where that was the year that Nicole, um, for the listeners that's my wife Nicole when she won it that year. And Nick passed us. I was pacing her for the last two loops. Nick passed us on the fourth lap up to Jackass Junction. So he got second overall. And he was running behind Nicole, who was first woman. I, th- I don't know where she finished overall in the field that year. It wasn't that far back. But it was like, you know, Nick was over an hour ahead. So between what was around mile 70 on the course to the finish, Nick put a full hour on us. And Nicole, relatively speaking, ran a pretty even race, like Mm. as far as ultra running, even splitting goes, like it still was a positive split, but, uh, it was, you know, Nick negative split by so much, he put an hour on that. So like that shows you how fast you can go at the end. So I'm not even clear that if you would say, Hey, my goal is eight 15, that starting out at eight 30 would be something that would be detrimental in the long term mm-hmm. to where it's all said it's off the table after loop one. Cause you did one loop at eight 30 pace and your goal is eight 15. You may find that the relative motivation of negative splitting, passing people along the way 
and feeling that race come to you versus feeling like you're holding on for dear life puts you in a position where now all of a sudden running eight flats that last loop isn't feel all that much worse than running eight flats on tired legs in training, which we know you can do. So <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of ways to think about it. And I think there's also a lot of learning. So I don't want to sound like I have all the answers here that you should just like sign up for Zach's word as gospel either. Cause I think there is, there are things to consider in terms of just our relative knowledge of the sport and things like that too. So, um, ultimately, uh, you have to kind of think of it to some degree of uncertainty, but I do think that even and even negative pacing or at least a little bit more of a conservative start as a whole is worth doing. And I think if that is the case, then practicing race specific intensity and pacing with your long runs versus a scenario where you're kind of pushing a little bit harder like you would in a traditional long run, relatively speaking, of course, a long run in general is going to be a little bit lower intensity, at least that you're matching it closer to what you're going to do on race day. So for you, Joe, that's maybe less of a like noticeable difference mm. because like you're still running most of this stuff. Whereas if let's say you'd have someone who is their goal is to break 24 hours at Javelina. Mm -hmm. So if we look at that, that's just over four miles per hour average. So mm. if that person comes around loop one, averaging six miles per hour, they're putting themselves in a position where they've really kind of overstretched themselves relative to what their goal is. And with that situation, I see a lot more big positive splits and it's likely a lot of non-moving time in aid stations because they sort of got mm. out ahead of themselves. So when someone thinks about that, if my goal is to average just over four miles per hour, you're sort of in this interesting situation where chances are when they go out for an easy run, they're running faster than that, maybe mm. significantly faster than that. Mm. But walking, although you could walk at, well, you can walk at a very fast pace. Actually, I don't want to get way off, <laughs> way off topic here, but well, watch, some, watch some race walkers, even at the 50K distance, you can see how fast you can actually walk. But reasonably speaking for someone doing an ultra marathon, you know, like, or just walking in general, person walking in general, I mean, we're not too far away from four, oh, just over four miles per hour, but it does take focus. And it isn't something where you're likely going to just like do the entire time at a race. So you sort of have the situation where your goal average pace is in this gray area where mm. it's slower than your average easy running pace, but it's faster than a comfortable walk. So what do you do in that situation? Do you just try to run your average pace that you're trying to goal that is this weird gray area pace? I don't think so. I think in that situation, mm. a run walk strategy or run hike strategy, we're going to call it is the move. So for that person, they might try to get close to averaging that slightly but past four miles per hour for that first those first early loops to stay on that, that goal average, but they might do that by running at the pace that feels comfortable at their easy pace, but supplementing that with planned hikes to bring their average mm. pace back down. So it just ends up becoming this big interval session essentially of run walk. And I think that does so many favors for people who have kind of those targets around that time frame, uh, or slower or faster. And, and it just gets underutilized or it gets utilized by default when it needs to versus early on when you could be putting yourself in a position to maybe feel better near the end of the race versus that experience. We all know because we're all imperfect and we all get out too fast at some point in time <laughs> and remember how that feels at the end of the day. Dude, man, so many just amazing nuggets out of that for sure. Like, I, I mean, so much to pull out. I love the run walk like thing too. Cause even, even when I think about like my last year at Javelina, um, 
I mean, I was just trying to like, I mean, I was holding on for dear life basically from like loops four and five. And luckily I had two amazing pacers, Austin Horn and Shelby Farrell. So shout out to those two for, for keeping me on, uh, keeping me on pace. Um, but man, like I was just holding on for dear life. And like, I think be- I-, I tried to keep pushed towards the pace and I would get to these aid stations. I would just sit down for like way too long, way too mm-hmm. long. Like I know. And I'm like wondering, I was like, Hey, like, I'm wondering if I just substituted that time for sitting for maybe just walking out of the aid station, like, mm-hmm. and just because I had this, you know, pride of just like, I should run this whole race and walking yeah. Javelina makes me like, you know, at least relative to my own goals, I'm not like trying to discredit, but like the pressure I was putting on my specific self. Um, but like, I think about it, I'm like, maybe like walking out of that aid station would be more productive than just, you know, just trying to like hammer it down. So it's like good things mm-hmm. to think about for sure. Like, and I, I, I love how you also talk about like practicing in long runs. Cause my last few long runs, I've been really trying to focus on that, like starting off slow and then just like really picking it up towards the end. And like, it's such a confidence boost to like, know, like, I mean, some of my last long runs, granted, I've been in cooler weather for a little bit. I'm in Phoenix now is what, you know, it's just <laughs> incredibly brutal this time of year. And so you have to naturally run slower to keep the intensity down. But I was in California. And so, you know, you just get like the instant fitness boost just by being somewhere cooler. And, uh, but like towards the end of the runs, I think I was like clipping, um, you know, the seven and it was feeling great. Like in my last mm-hmm. few miles and I was like, wow, like this is super cool. And so like gaining that experience, which is something I hadn't focused on, um, so much in the last training block. And I know you suggested this cause I was saying, I want to build that confidence has just been, game changer and just gives me more trust to like say like okay if i just take this slow and easy in the beginning like it's gonna pay off and like using those long runs as like that specific confidence booster um mm-hmm. for race day for sure yeah it's amazing how good you can feel at the end of a hundred miler if things get paced right and you're able to accordingly take care of yourself it's just like one of those things like like, and I'm not trying to say I do it perfect every time. I've had plenty of negative or positive splits, more, more, way more positive splits than even or negative splits. I've just had enough even and negative splits to know that that's the way to go. <laughs> and it is funny, though, because I think a lot of times people have to kind of learn it by doing it in order to really appreciate it and really get that experience of what it feels like. Because it's just so easy to think of how you felt at the end of a hundred mile or at the end of a long ultra marathon and just expect that that is inevitable and not want to have to do that 30 minutes behind where you were the year before, because that's where the mind goes, right? It's like, I'm going to feel the same way, but I'm going to be 30 minutes further back than I was the year prior. That just seems like, you know, something insurmountable. And, and I'll add one more component to the value of it too, is like, and, and I'll use Nicole again as an example here. So Nicole Havelina last year, uh, she was third, but she was in 10th place after I think the second loop still. So mm-hmm. she had this added like value of, you know, you always want to chunk this thing. You never want to be thinking about, oh, I got to get to hundred miles all day long. Cause you're just going to burn your mental battery out by doing that. But if you have a situation like that, where you're sitting a little bit further back and people have more or less forgotten about you, then you pass someone and move into ninth. That's a check off the list. And we pass them and move into eighth. That's a check off the list. Now I move into seven. And you're creating a focus point of you're no longer thinking about getting to the finish line. Now you're thinking about moving from seventh to sixth, sixth to fifth, fifth to fourth, and kind of working your way up there. So you're creating all these small goals, which is what you want to do in the first place by the way you're racing versus putting yourself in a position where maybe you start out with a group that is technically all around third place. But now that group starts to pull away from you 
Now you're in fifth. Now you're in sixth. Now you're in seventh. So now you're just thinking about getting to 100 miles because every time someone passes <laughs> you, you're just like, oh, how do I get to 100 miles and finish this thing up? And yeah. So it's like there's so much of a mindset thing to this. And I think when we look at it practically through like even your goal average pace is really, really slow compared to what you could do on any given day. Like if I sent you, I could, I could send you out now, like unannounced for a 60 minute run significantly faster than 8.15 or 8.30 pace. And you'd be able to do it even if mm-hmm. you did a workout this morning. Like if you had to, you'd be able to do it. So mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. fact, so then you should expect to be able to have that level of motivation on race day when you're at the goal race that you've been preparing for to think like, if I feel like I'm mentally focused, f- fuel and hydration is good and pacing was good, you'll have that focus to be able to really kind of hit those paces and you'll probably surprise yourself at how fast you can actually move. And then like you said, Joe, um, cleaning up aid station stuff is a huge one, a lot of like non-moving time. And one way to do that is if you do build a walking strategy into your plan, rather than going into an aid station and just sitting there and kind of like trying to figure out what you want while you're in there, you can go in there and I'll just say, think about, start thinking about this about five, 10 minutes before you get into the aid station. What do you actually need and want? So that when you go in, you know what it is you're getting. You get it and then you walk out with it because if you're going to be doing some walking anyway, you may as well eliminate a lot of that standing time, the aid station and walk out of that aid station and start the eating and drinking Mm. part of the strategy while you're walking, which is a much easier time to eat and drink anyway. (laughs) So, so so yeah, there's so much value, I think, into building and hiking breaks for most people with these races too, because you, you have that added component of you can eliminate standing time. You can eliminate the, you can almost entirely eliminate the need to eat and drink while you're running because you can take care of a lot of that during, I mean, you still want to be focusing on nibbling and sipping, which is going to be the best way to kind of process that stuff on race day. But you got a lot more opportunity to do that with ease during your walking breaks than you do during your running phases of the, of the run. Yeah. Oh man. Well, for everyone listening, I think it's clear why Zach has, I've gotten so much value from Zach because like, this is like, you're given like a masterclass, I think on like how to craft like an amazing race and an amazing training block, which is so cool. And even so like with that tips for the aid station stuff, I mean, that's just so genius because I remember last year I just killed so much time just sitting around and just like being in the the chair and everything like that. And so like, Mm -hmm. just to just say, Hey, like the walking is going to help here is going to be super, super useful for sure. And I also want to share like what one last thing on the, um, is I love how you talked about the focus changes when you're climbing from behind to just getting, you know, past like, cause at canyons and black Canyon, I was pretty much just, I mean, while canyons, I was at, or black Canyon, I actually did move up from like 36 to like 29th, which was like such a great feeling. And that was like really exuberant, mm-hmm. but I was, I was, pretty miserable for a lot of that race and my pacer <laughs> I was kind of like leaning on him pretty mentally for it um but at Kauai 50 it was interesting because I don't know if I shared this with you yet but um I was really hot I was dealing with the hip issues like it was the humidity was just kicking my butt and um I remember on loop four, I came in or loop three, I came in, there's a four loop course. And I went to the guy who was crewing me and I had no idea where I was at, at this point. I thought I was like, in my head, I was like, I'm like 15th or something. And, uh, my, the, the guy was like, yeah, dude, you're like 10th male right now. And I was mm-hmm. like, Whoa. Okay. And like instantly this like thing like shifted in my head just from a mental perspective. It was like, I just felt so much better just with that piece of information. And I was like, Oh, I can like hunt. Like, where's this guy? And then he's like, yeah, he's like two minutes ahead of you. And then like 
it was weird. Like, so to, to think like my oriented focus, like basically was like, I'm going to hunt this guy. And I just felt mm-hmm. better just with that focus. So like, that is such a great point. I never, I didn't put two and two together until you said that until now, but yeah, I had it first, uh, first hand in the Kawhi five O race, which like helped me to go. And I eventually, uh, chase that guy and who's actually my friend Don. So sorry, Don, I didn't, didn't mean to just blow past you, but, uh, <laughs> it was, a, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was just a whole different change of pace. And that last loop was stronger than my third loop, which was super cool to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great experience to reflect back on and, and to kind of like put that in perspective for Javelina. I just pulled up your Javelina Strava data from, oh from last year. Oh, that's, that's Here we go. We're getting, getting we're getting tight. serious now. Okay, tight. <laughs> <laughs> and th- this is what I want you to think about on race day. So I just glanced over it and picked out the four slowest miles that you had there. I'm guessing these were aid stations. Maybe, maybe not. Probably. There was two of them were in the 17s. Two of them were in the 18s. So Oof. if we just assume based on your goal average that you're looking for, which is going to be in the, that mid to low eight range. We take those four miles alone. That's 40 minutes right there, 40 minutes above the goal average there. So 40 minutes is, I mean, let's, let, let's take that 40 minutes and let's just, let's just break it down into what that could do for you. If you're able to clean that, if you're able to clean that up. So let's say the first 40 miles, you run one minute per mile slower than mm. you did last year. All you have to do is fix those four miles and you're running an equivalent. So it's like, think of how much less stressful and easier it would have been last year if those first 40 miles were one minute per mile slower. And you can even look at it. Yeah, you know, Obviously you want to run faster than it last year. So like, it won't just be like, it's not as simple as that. That would just equate things. But to put it in perspective, like, because you're, you're probably not going to go out a minute per mile slower than you did last year. But if you did, it's only four miles to normalize that. So then if you start cleaning up some of those other miles on top of it, mm. then now all of a sudden you're taking time off last year's finishing time and getting closer down to what you're looking for, I think. Uh, yeah. So I think it's just like a lot of times people – and I, I this is when I was told early on in my running. I was talking to Ian Sharman, who is obviously a legend mm. of the sport and very much is a good, he's a, he's a good pacer too. He knows how to, <laughs> how to break down a course. But he told me, he's like, I don't know why people are always trying to like fix five seconds here, 10 seconds there early on in a race. It's like, that's not where the problems are. He's like, look at the, look, look at your, your slowest miles out on the course, fix those. If you just fix those, you're taking chunks off your time. So that would be kind of my, if, if people are looking for like an, an action plan after this podcast or a first order of order of uh, operations here is I would pull up your last race and just kind of go through it in a couple of minutes and look at those splits and see like, where are the four to five slowest points here? And what can I do to eliminate those? Because if you can eliminate those, you're probably looking at, you know, like 40, 50, maybe 60 minutes. So you know, that's the first spot, clean that up. And then you can start worrying about the five seconds, the 10 seconds and that sort of thing, which may take care of itself. If you just, you know, fix some of the early pacing stuff. Dude, I got chills when you said that too, because <laughs> so helpful. The 18 minute because, mile pace gave you chills. 
<laughs> yeah, so it gave me chill. That gave me the bad chills, and then and then when you said all I need to do is this, gave me the good chills. Yeah, well, eighteen minutes. Oh man, not good. Um, but like that is such a much more digestible concept to me because like even you know as I think about like my goal and I'm like oh I'm gonna have to push you know eight thirties like like harder into the race like just the, the thought of that like is. I don't want to say daunting, but it's like, oh, it's, it's going to be a tall order, you know, but like just to break it down to the concept, like even if you run those first few miles slower mm-hmm. and if you just take care of those four miles, like you make up so much time like that is like, oh, it just seems so much more attainable and approachable. And um, and I can tell you, like I already told my crew, I was like, don't even have a chair for me at the yeah. <laughs> uh, at, 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 at uh, headquarters because I, I, I cannot afford to I'm going to tell my pacers too to like slap me if they uh they they ever see me asking for a chair or two in the last two loops for sure yeah yeah no there's there's some good uh you know that's that's actually an interesting point too is like i like to when someone's working with a crew or a pacer for that matter it's 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 usually good to have some sort of non-negotiables to go into it with mm-hmm. where it's like don't don't even let me consider this and i actually think thinking about healing and fueling and hydration this way is probably a great starting point for people where if you know, like, hey, this is the minimum I should be doing from a fueling hydration standpoint, tell your crew that this is a non-negotiable. No matter how hard I try to talk you out of making me do this, this is something I have to do. And the rest of it can be additional where it's like, yeah, I'll ask for that if I need it. And then if you are in a rough spot and you don't want to do more than what you need to do, then you do have that option. But give your crew some non-negotiables because for the crew, that helps them out a ton because it's tough as a crew to try to force something on you if they haven't been told ahead of time, like, mm-hmm. hey, this is something, it's good because they know what you really want then versus feeling like they're trying to force something on you that you don't actually want or take away something that you actually need in the case of a chair. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, dude. I love that too. Yeah, because when you're super clear with like those instructions, like you, you don't let them, because I've been in situations where I've, you know, uh, crude people before and you don't get clear instructions and you're like, is this something like, they want me to push back on or is this mm-hmm. what they actually want? And then you kind of get that uncertainty. And like, it was super cool when I was crewing, um, Scott Trayer at Western States. I mean, he like documented out like pages yeah. of like, if I do this, give me this, if I do this, give me this. Mm-hmm. So there was like no hesitation. It was just like, Oh, yeah. like he said this, like, you know, give him this, he said this, give him this, like, you know, or do this. And so that direction I think is just so useful because I, I don't think when I think about my crewing experience, I definitely was not clear enough. I think, to say like, Hey, if I want to sit, like, don't let me sit. And uh, mm-hmm. cause I remember like on the second loop, I was like, let me sit down. And I felt how good that chair was. And I just didn't, <laughs> I, I just, I like aid station. I was just thinking about the chair, which is so bad. So, I, so bad. My, my guess is if you, if you pace yourself a little more conservatively in the beginning, you'll come through and you won't even, you won't avoid sitting in the chair. You'll kick the chair out of the way. You'll just become blasted. <laughs> exactly just blast it out of the way get it out get it out of here oh man well zach dude this has been amazing like and so um it's so cool just because i I learned so much on these coaching calls and like they've just helped me progress as an athlete and i think like just the value of just having just such a great coach is like even just from a mental perspective like i was telling you like there's a few things i was mentally juggling and you helped to sort it out like through your experience and through like you know your training and what you've seen and you know like what 
your experience. And so like, I can't thank you enough for this. Like this has been like a masterclass for not only me, but also everybody listening to. And so super, super grateful for, for, for your time here, Zach and everything. And so for everyone listening to, I'll put links to Zach's uh, podcast series and his overall podcast too, in the show notes, if you want to look more into um, his simplified series where he talks about the different concepts, check it out. It is amazing. Um, and then also his podcast, human performance outliers is just incredible as is. Um, so please check that out as well. I'll put a link to his website as well. He's got tons of pre-made training plans, which follow the same principles that we've been talking about here today too. Um, and I'll put links to his, uh, social media handles below as well. And then I guess to, to, to wrap things up, Zach, is there any like last minute words of wisdom or things, you know, when someone's going through any training block that you think would be important for people to know as they're listening, whether it is they're training for Havelina or Moab 240 or, you know, a marathon, like whatever, like what, what is, or I guess we'll keep it ultra specific more so because mm -hmm. that's the audience here, but any last like words of wisdom for people who are out there and, you know, really looking just to optimize their training. Yeah, I think I actually just recently recorded a podcast on this, which dealt with the mental aspect of, of training. Because I think people oftentimes start thinking about this around race time or maybe not even until race time is just like, what is your brain actually going to go through when you're out there for a long period of time like that? And how can you actually practice that without actually adding any additional things to your to-do list, so to speak? So you're already doing the training, right? So you're addressing the physiological side of things, but there is a huge value add in actually taking all of that in and acknowledging what you're actually doing during that. Cause I think a lot of people do these things intuitively, but they don't recognize it necessarily that they're doing it. And they're, if you acknowledge it, I think it's just going to make it more likely for you to behave this way on race day. So we talk about race day, wanting to chunk the event into like manageable pieces where you can first get this done before you worry about that. And ultimately doing all those things as well as you can will add up to your finishing, finishing the race where you want to. There's so many opportunities to do that in your day-to-day -day life and your training where take example, let's say someone's doing short intervals, they're in their speed work development phase and they get to this point where they're doing, let's say they're doing 10 intervals total. They get to three, they start second guessing whether 10 is the right number. Maybe eight's enough. Maybe I, sh mm. I don't think I, I'm not going to be able to do 10. 10 is too many. What you do in that situation is you back yourself up and say, wait a second, why am I thinking about 10 right now? I'm only on three. Let's do four, assess how I feel, then do five, assess where I feel, then do six. And you start to kind of chunk it in that way that makes sense because really ultimately what you want with those short interval sessions is to finish feeling like you could do one or two more if you had to and that will present itself throughout when it's ready to you won't know that at three necessarily so why give yourself any more headache about dealing with it at that time so recognizing how your thought process and how you actually break that down and carry that over to race day is great and there's a bunch of different ways to do this i talk about all of them in that podcast episode um of just like how you structure your day and your week it's like you're not when, when you start work on Monday, you're not thinking about, oh, on Friday at 3 p.m. I have to like finish this one, this one task. No, you're thinking about what you need to do on Monday to make sure on Friday you're able to consider that. So you're not necessarily, you know it's there, just like you know the 100-mile finish line is there, but you know you have to tackle Monday before you get to Friday anyway. So we do these things all the time. So I think acknowledging that you do that and you're actually quite good at it, so good at it that you probably do it intuitively but give yourself some opportunities to recognize those points in your day-to-day -day life and your training so that when you get there on race day, that becomes intuitive. So instead of your mind going to, 
oh, I got to run 100 miles and thinking about that nonstop during the day, you actually are thinking about, all right, I just need to get to that aid station or I need to get to that checkpoint or I'm going to try to catch up with that runner up ahead. Those, those sort of things that um, ultimately build into your progress throughout the course of the day. So good. Such a great, great tip, right? Because I think we can all relate. I know I can like being in those interval sessions and like, you know, even like some of them in in my short intervals, like, you know, that you had me do where I'm doing, you know, eight, nine, 10, like when it gets like four, it can sometimes get tough and your mind gets into that trap. And so, but to recognize that it's like, Hey, like, you know, we're just going to focus in the interval that we're in or the mile that we're in or aid station to aid station. Like that is such like a key, a crucial thing. And I love how you also bring it into life because I think it can be easy to, to feel like those things are compartmentalized and like the way that we think but if you really realize it's like hey like we sometimes can live our lives as if you know or some things that we do intuitively can be carried over into race day or our training like that is just so awesome man so such great advice here as you can see this is why i've been working with zach and and continue to work and continue to rave about his coaching on uh on my uh my on the podcast here as you've heard me do so many times and there's good reason for it because man i've learned so much from you zach like i credit like when people ask me like what's the biggest like key to my success i really say like hey you know working with zach like for sure like hands down no no doubt about it so um just want to say thank you for just being such an awesome coach an awesome resource not just to me but all your athletes and everyone who you you, you reach on the podcast and for all who follow you man because uh dude what you're doing for the running community is incredible and, and we're all grateful for your support well thanks a bunch joe you're you're too kind as always <laughs> Just it's, it's the been praise, a, right. absolutely my pleasure to work with you it's been fun to watch you kind of really embrace the sport and find what your interests are within it and kind of keep chasing goals and things like that so uh yeah it's been a it's been a blast Thank you so much for listening to the Everyday Ultra Podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to do so. And if you absolutely love the show and want to support us in any ways, there's a few ways that you can do so. The first way is writing us a review on the platform of your choice. Reviews really, really matter and they help us to spread the word a lot more. So if you have the time to do so, would love that as well. Number two, you can join our Patreon community. Patreon helps us to support the show and helps us to grow and invest into new developments and growth. And on top of that, just for about $5 a month, you can get access to monthly calls with me where you can ask me anything on a monthly basis, connect with other members in the Everyday Ultra community, and ultimately get early access episodes without ads as well, which is super, super cool, all for about $5 a month. So it's a great way to support us. And then number three is taking care of our sponsors on here. So as you heard in the beginning of the podcast, uh, we had some sponsors in here. And if you want to invest into their product and uh, go try them out, they're all products that I've tried either in my training and I live by. I don't take any sponsorships from anybody I don't incorporate in my training. So uh, feel free to take advantage of their product and tell them that Joe sent you from Everyday Ultra. Those are three ways to support the podcast, but no matter which way that you choose or if you don't choose a way at all, just know that I really appreciate you for listening in. I know there's tons of podcasts out there. And the fact that you're listening to us, that really, really means a lot. All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening. And remember, become a better endurance athlete every day, and we'll see you real soon. Take care.